evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Happy New Year, everyone. (laughs) 2023 is already off to a rocky start, but let's hope that things in the world of science, at least, continue to be fascinating and surprising and that we learn more about how to live sustainably on this planet, because that's a big deal right now. We uh, once again had one of the warmest years on record last year, and lots of bad things are happening. California is just a disaster zone right now. Lots of things happening. And on that note, a reminder of the other big thing, which is that COVID-19 continues to be out there. Uh, Just because we're not doing weekly updates anymore doesn't mean that it is not out there. And uh, so I do recommend still wearing masks and still being really cautious. Well, the CDC has revised estimates for the new XBB 1.5 strain across the country, Um, hospitalizations, test positivity, and deaths are all on the rise across the country. And so uh, they had initially thought that it was much more prevalent than it currently is, but that doesn't mean that it won't become more prevalent. And we don't yet know a lot about it because it is relatively new. And so it may have increased transmissibility. It is a descendant of Omicron, which of course had a lot more transmissibility. Um, But there's one good thing, which is that we have gotten to the point in the U.S. where people actually have started to have a... um, have the same amount of interest or uh, ability to get COVID-19 vaccines uh, as there is in Europe. And so we have been lagging behind, but it looks like we are uh, down to around 20% of vaccine hesitancy. And so while that's still very high um, for what it should be, because it should be next to nothing, it is good that um, we are kind of pulling forward and moving up to where uh, kind of the generalized European numbers are. And so, of course, there are people in other countries who are much less hesitant to get the vaccine and don't have access to the vaccine, whereas we have plenty of access to vaccines and we have seen uh, a lot of resistance. So it's still around 20% and that's for people who have gotten no vaccine. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who are in the, uh, have gotten the vaccine now have only had uh, one shot. Um, 
And so boosters are still problematic. And so uh, we really do need to be able to tell better, uh, for one thing, if the boosters really are working. Um, it does seem that there is uh, evidence towards that, but there's still work to be done there and especially against new strains to see if uh, we should be really pushing it because um, knowing about the ability of it to actually do something is really helpful in trying to get people to actually want to take it. All right, so let us get going uh, for tonight's stories and uh, stop talking about COVID for another at least week. Um, hopefully we will be able to put it back down for a while and just keep wearing masks and continue to uh, do basic uh, COVID-19 uh, avoidance techniques. So we're going to start tonight with a story about an alternative to standard refrigeration. Scientists at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory have developed a potential new way to refrigerate called ionocaloric cooling. Now, they achieved cooling by using electrically charged atoms or ions to change the melting point of a solid material. This same principle is involved in the salting of roads before a storm to alter the properties of ice that may form. And so you decrease the melting point of the salt, I mean, of the water, and then ice is less likely to form. And so the team used salt made with iodine and sodium in conjunction with an organic solvent to make an energy-efficient cooling device according to their recent paper in the journal Science. The landscape of refrigerants is an unsolved problem. No one has successfully developed an alternative solution that makes stuff cold, works efficiently, is safe, and doesn't hurt the environment, said co-author Drew Lilly. We think the ionocaloric cycle has the potential to meet all of those goals, all those goals, if realized appropriately. Now, many scientists have worked on this problem, including Albert Einstein and his colleague, Leo Slizard. The two collaborated in 1926 after they learned about the tragic deaths of a family in Berlin due to toxic gas fumes that leaked out of a broken refrigerator seal. At the time, these leaks were frequent because people were just starting to replace traditional ice boxes with these, you know, new refrigerators, which relied on toxic gases like methyl chloride, ammonia, and sulfur dioxide as refrigerants. And frankly, I'm not even sure that it's better than an old-fashioned ice box in many respects, but, you know, progress or something. Um, I don't actually know that. I just, <laughs> I was actually reading an article uh, earlier today about someone who basically unplugged from the grid um, in Manhattan, though he was using a solar powered battery. So he wasn't unplugging from actual like electricity all the way, but he didn't use his refrigerator. Um, but of course, he's also vegan, so that makes it a lot easier 
for him to not use a uh, refrigerator than those who have things like meat and uh, fish that they need to keep fresh. Anywho, Einstein was determined to find a better way to prevent further tragedies. The two focused on absorption refrigerators in which a heat source, for their design a natural gas flame, is used to derive to drive the absorption process and release coolant from a chemical solution rather than a mechanical compressor. A version of this design was introduced in 1922 by Swiss inventors. Slizard found a way to improve their design using his expertise in thermodynamics. The device used a heat source to drive a combination of gases and liquids through three interconnected circuits, pressurized ammonia, butane, and water without the need for electricity if using gas as the heat source, and it had no moving parts. One side contained a flask filled with butane as an evaporator, which was injected with ammonia just above the butane, creating a differential. This then decreased the boiling temperature of the water, and as the water boiled off, it drew energy from its surroundings, creating a chilling effect. While the proof of concept was patented, the refrigerator never made it to the commercial market due to the development of Freon in 1930, providing a seemingly non-toxic and more economical method of cooling. You most likely know by now that while non-toxic to the human body, Freon and other hydrofluorocarbons used in modern refrigeration are toxic to the environment as they are contributors to global warming. So now there has been a turn to caloric cooling alternatives. These solutions use a solid material that is then manipulated via magnetic, electrical, or mechanical forces to make them absorb or release heat. They replace the original Carnot cycle of increasing and decreasing pressure, that is the fundamental principle underlying that current refrigeration um, type that we use, with increases and decreases in magnetic or electrical fields or some sort of mechanical energy. So for instance, thermoacoustic engines are possible, and they have actually been employed on the small scale by such disparate groups as Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream and NASA. <laughs> and so thermoacoustic effects were first discovered more than 100 years ago by glass blowers in the 19th century, who observed that tones were generated by hot glass bulbs attached to a cool tube. And so the mechanical energy involved in sound waves as they compress and expand the air can be used to cool and heat stacks of metal plates. Some plates heat up while others cool, creating the needed differential for usable energy, which combined with a few heat exchangers yields a cooling chamber. And so basically you're using that mechanical energy from um, compressing and expanding air. So that's the um, way in which you're doing that, which I think is really cool. So uh, basically in the one that I read about from Ben and Jerry's, 
it's basically got a loudspeaker inside of it that screeches out this tone that allows for the ability of the cooling mechanism to use the energy of that tone. And uh, apparently on the outside, you could just hear a small hum. So that's good because if it, you had to hear the shriek, that would not be uh, useful at all. But I think that it's really cool. Unfortunately, as you can probably tell, it hasn't yet gotten wide adoption. And um, we'll talk a tiny bit later about why that might be. But yeah, we're still mostly using our old fashioned refrigeration right now, which is one of those places where we kind of need to sort ourselves out because um, this is definitely a place where we are using a lot of chemicals that are bad for the environment. And if we can find better ways to do it, we really should. Okay, so Ionocaloric cooling is different in that it uses ions to induce a solid to liquid phase change. So it's not using mechanical energy or anything like that. It's using the properties of ions. Um, and so uh, it does use a small electrical current though. So there is that. The ions are then moved and change the refrigerant's material, the refrigerant material's melting point. As it melts, it takes heat from the surrounding environment. When the ions are removed, the material re-solidify and re reabsorb the heat. And so the goal is to balance the global warming potential, GWP, of the refrigerant, the energy efficiency of the system, and the costs of creating the equipment needed for commercial needs. Lily and his co-author, Ravi Prashar, first worked out the math involved in the creation of such a system, and the theoretical calculations showed promise. It suggested that a cycle could equal or even exceed the efficiency of today's currently available refrigerators. They then tested the theory using a solution of salt and ethylene carbonate, a common ingredient in lithium-ion batteries. As an added bonus, there's potential to have refrigerants that are just that are not just GWP zero, but GWP negative. Lily says, using material like ethylene carbonate could actually be carbon negative, because you produce it by using carbon dioxide as an input. This could give us a place to use CO2 from carbon capture. Now, their initial experiment achieved a 25 degrees Celsius, Celsius temperature change, requiring less than one volt of energy. That's much better than other caloric alternatives. For instance, those thermoacoustic refrigerators, they only work at about 40% efficiency. And so that's not going to be great for a GWP uh, zero future. And so in addition, changing the refrigerant's phase from solid to liquid means that it can be pumped through the system, making heat exchange easier. So it's also uh, engineeringly, mechanically better. Now, their next step is to make a prototype for a provisional patent. Um, because this is still in the early theoretical state. So uh, you definitely won't be able to 
go out and buy one uh, next year, probably. It'll probably be a couple of years if it does come to fruition. And hopefully either this or some other uh, new version will uh, come out in the next several years. And so they actually believe that there may be applications not only in refrigeration, but also in water and industrial heating, because if you can do the one, you can do the other. We have this brand new thermodynamic cycle and framework that brings together elements from different fields, and we've shown that it can work, said Prusher. Now it's time for experimentation to test different combinations of materials and techniques to meet the engineering challenges. And again, if they can bring this proof of concept to the market, it could be a real boon for environmentally responsible heating and cooling, which would be great. Um, so yeah, we're, <laughs> I think there's an interesting, um, question as to whether or not we need to engineer our way out of the global warming crisis or de-engineer our way out of the global warming crisis. And by that, I mean giving up some of our technology. Um, I think that, you know, obviously in places like America, we are very much on the side of engineering our way out of it. Um, but I think that's a whole philosophical conversation we could have uh, that is outside of the scope of tonight's show. <laughs> so um, I think that we'll keep going for tonight on the various stories that I have. I've got one more that's uh, environmentally uh, oriented, and then we're going to do a couple of fun ones at the end. So let's go on now and talk about Roman concrete. Now, you might not think that this has anything to do with the global warming crisis, but figure it, we'll, we'll get there. Um, now, of course, you know that it's a favorite subject on this show uh, to talk about ancient engineering and how, like, smart and amazing and uh, efficient and just... Uh, amazing that people in the past were. And so it really is very important for me to remind people because it just seems like so many people are like, oh, you know, uh, history is this long line of achievement where people in the past achieved less than people in the uh, modern times. And in a lot of ways, that's just not true at all. And concrete from Rome is one of, or Roman concrete, is one of those big places. Roman concrete is far superior to the kind of concrete we use in the modern world. It is extremely, extremely strong and water resistant. Roman seawalls have survived 2,000 years of pounding waves. Two thousand years. The Pantheon, the largest unreinforced concrete dome, has also survived for almost 2,000 years, despite the ravages of weather, seismic activity, and the activity of man. <laughs> Let's be perfectly honest about that. And we're still learning to this day just how the heck they did it. 
modern concrete starts to decay after just a few decades. <laughs> like, I cannot stress enough how much better Roman concrete is than our current concrete. And so we learned a few years ago that the marine concrete, that stuff that makes up the seawalls, employs a chemical reaction that actually strengthens the concrete when it interacts with seawater. It causes the growth of tobermorite crystals that grow from philipsite a common ingredient in volcanic rocks. So now one of the things we've always known um, or have known since we started really looking at Roman concrete is that it does have specific properties related to that volcanic ash and the volcanic pumice that was available to them um, in ways that just aren't available all over the world, but almost certainly can be chemically synthesized. And so the crystals are long and plate-like, which allows the material to flex rather than shatter when it bends. And so the seawater actually helps reinforce the concrete rather than breaking it down. And now new research published in the journal Science Advances examines material found at the Privernum site, that has given us yet another new clue. It shows that Romans used quote-unquote hot mixing with quicklime, along with other techniques, to give the material self-healing properties. Again, they really knew how to do this. And of course, they did this via trial and error and through experimentation. And, you know, the Roman Empire went on for many hundreds of years and people, um, you know, built up ideas about how to do this. And they were very well um, organized. And so you could basically send out the recipe across the empire to tell people to do exactly this in order to get the right kind of concrete. Today's cement is a combination of Portland's cement, or today's concrete, is a combination of Portland cement, small rocks, and water. Roman concrete was much the same, a mix of semi-liquid mortar and aggregate. Now, Portland cement is generally made by heating limestone and clay with a bunch of other things um, in a kiln, and the resulting clinker is then ground into a fine powder with a bit of added gypsum uh, to give it a smoother, uh, more flat surface. And so we use these, you know, very small rocks, but aggregate Romans, but the aggregate Romans used was made up of fist-sized pieces of stone or bricks. And so that is one of the things that, you know, Roman um, concrete tends to be thicker, um, though not necessarily all that much. Our concrete tends to be fairly thick, um, in diameter at least. And so um, I think we've previously also discussed the tomb of Caecilla Metella, a noblewoman from the first century, which is one of the best preserved tombs on the Appian Way. Admir Masik, an environmental engineer at MIT, was actually involved in that research, and he's been studying Roman concrete for the last several years. 
During that examination, he and his colleagues found that the tomb was created using volcanic tephra from the Plazolane Rose pyroclastic flow, which bound together large chunks of brick and lava aggregate. Again, big fist-sized chunks. They found that the tephra used in the tomb's mortar contained a high level of potassium-rich leucite. Here, the potassium in the mortar dissolved and effectively remodeled the binding phase. And so basically, um, as the potassium dissolved, there were chemical reactions that remodeled the concrete in order to keep it um, in the shape that it should be. Uh, but of course, it's interesting because there's some places where it's very, very uh, much looks like the day that it was made. And there's other places where it seems to be kind of starting to dissolve and crack. And so, um, you know, this isn't necessarily something that lasts forever. Uh, potentially the potassium in those areas uh, was lower and so ran out sooner. But uh when they actually looked at it, when Masik and his colleagues looked at it using various, you know, um, spectrographic and um, microscopic uh, instruments, they found that the structure was somewhat uh, akin to nanocrystals. Uh, so that's really interesting. And so Masik, along with Janil Morag of MIT and James Weaver of Harvard, uh, they had already started to pioneer tools for analyzing Roman concrete samples from Pravernum uh, at multiple scales, including deploying Raman spectroscopy for chemical profiling and multi-detector energy dispersive spectroscopy, or EDS, for phase mapping the materials. And so they started this work back in 2019 and so have been working on this ever since. And so Masick noted that beyond the standard volcanic material thought to be the key to the concrete, there were also small, distinctive, millimeter scale, bright white mineral features, which researchers had dubbed lime clasts. Ever since I first began working with ancient Roman concrete, I've always been fascinated by these features, said Masik. These are not found in modern concrete formulations, so why are they present in the ancient materials? Now, earlier research suggested that these inclusions were merely the result of sloppy mixing practices or poor quality raw materials, but Masik didn't buy that. The idea that the presence of these lime class was simply attributed to low quality control always bothered me, says Masik. If the Romans put in so much effort into making an outstanding construction material, following all of the detailed recipes that had been optimized over the course of many centuries, why would they put so little effort into ensuring the production of a well-mixed final product? There had to be more to this story. And so now they are giving us the answer to this. Using the techniques he and his colleagues had pioneered, he was able to find that the lime casts were a result of using reactive quicklime with perhaps also slaked lime, which is uh, what was originally thought that they used primarily slaked lime. Um, but uh, 
it turns out that they use quicklime, which is more reactive, which means you get a higher temperature. They found that the class were forms of calcium carbonate that had formed at extremely high temperatures, thus using a hot mixing technique. The benefits of hot mixing are twofold, Masick said. First, when the overall concrete is heated to high temperatures, it allows chemistries that are not possible if you only used slaked lime, producing high temperature associated compounds that would not otherwise form. Second, this increased temperature significantly reduces curing and setting times since all the reactions are accelerated, allowing for much faster construction. It also creates a kind of self-healing property. Masick notes that when cracks began to form in the concrete, they are more likely to move through the lime casts. The casts then have the ability to react with water, which produces a calcium-rich solution that can then either recrystallize as calcium carbonate or react with the puzzlenic compound components to strengthen the composite material. So basically, it either creates calcium carbonate or it reacts with those volcanic elements to create a new uh, composite material. The team found evidence of calcite-filled cracks in other samples of Roman concrete supporting the findings. They then did experimental uh, trials. They tried different mixtures of ancient and modern recipes. They then deliberately cracked the samples and ran water through them. Those that were made with quicklime healed completely within two weeks, while the others never healed. So maybe someday we'll be able to recreate the ancient method of concrete. It's exciting to think about how these more durable concrete formulations could expand not only the service life of these materials, but also how it could improve the durability of 3D printed concrete formulations, said Masick. And as another added bonus, Masick hopes that through extended functional lifespan and the development of lighter forms, that these efforts could help reduce the environmental impact of cement production, which currently accounts for 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And that might not seem like a lot, but for one thing, for just concrete, which we use a lot, 8% is kind of a big deal. And so Masick's lab is also hoping to create concrete that can actually absorb carbon dioxide from the air, thus further reducing the global impact on concrete. So that's pretty exciting because um, concrete is a big problem that we do need to find a solution for. And if we can find a solution by looking to the ancients, I think that's pretty neat. All right, uh, we are going to take a break now. And when we come back, we are going to talk about uh, some fun stories about paper. Um, I know that doesn't necessarily sound all that fun, but uh, hold on. <laughs> and so, yeah, please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. 
Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as advertised, we are going to be talking about the mathematics of paper. But not just any paper. First, we're going to talk about the wives' tale of the fact that you can't fold paper more than uh, seven or eight times. And then we're going to talk about paper airplanes. And so this first story comes from a recent write-up about Brittany Gallivan, who in 2002, when just a junior in high school, broke the Guinness World Record for the most times to fold a sheet of paper in half. Prior to my endeavor, it was the accepted belief that folding a piece of paper in half more than eight times was impossible, and seven folds was the commonly accepted folding limit. And I definitely remember that. 
Um, Gallivan told this to Live Science in an email. I was the first person to ever fold paper in half nine, 10, 11, and 12 times. And not only did she accomplish the feat, she also came up with the equations to calculate the number of times any piece of paper can be folded in half in a single direction or multiple directions. She even wrote a book on the subject called How to Fold Paper in Half 12 Times, if you want to get the whole story. Um, (laughs) And so she actually started on this path after a math class extra credit prompt uh, was given to fold anything in half 12 times, according to the Historical Society of Pomona Valley. For this challenge, she folded a sheet of gold leaf 12 times. And of course, gold leaf is very thin, so that's not terribly uh, hard to do. And so then her math teacher upped the ante and suggested folding a piece of paper. I began working on the problem by spending many hours trying to fold paper sheets, newspapers, and any other flat material I could find, Gallivant said. This is the first approach most people use to attempt to solve the problem. It was very frustrating, as I had many unsuccessful attempts at trying to fold different papers in half. I began to question if all those who had attempted the problem before me were correct that folding a paper in half more than eight times could very well be impossible. I could not accept that folding in half could be limited. I knew I needed to either accomplish the challenge or understanding or understand what was limiting the folding progression. Calculating the underlying math, she found that in order to fold a paper many times in half, you'd need a long, thin sheet, because the more the sheet is folded, the thicker the resulting stack becomes. Once the paper is thicker than it is long, there's no more ability to fold it. If you think about how, uh, you know, basically tough it gets after the third or fourth or fifth uh, fold, I know that I've done it before. And when you get to around eight, because that's a standard piece of paper, on a standard piece of paper, by the time you get to about eight, it is absolutely rock hard and will not move at all. Um, I've definitely remember doing this in the past, um, probably also in high school, <laughs> to be honest. And so to claim the prize, she actually used a sheet of tissue paper that she purchased online, which was 4,000 feet long. That's more than three quarters of a mile. <laughs> So that's a big piece of paper. So she started off uh, very big. And of course, she also started off fairly thin because um, tissue paper is a little thinner than regular stock paper, but it's still paper. And so she says that the task took her about eight hours of crawling in a long corridor of a nearby shopping mall. Working on the problem took a tremendous amount of time and effort, Gallivan said. As frustrating as it was at times, it was a fun and exhilarating endeavor. 
I learned an immense amount from the experience, which has been valuable to me throughout my life in more capacities than one would expect. Now, since then, many others have tried, but they basically, uh, no one has really done it in a way that is true to the rules of the challenge, which requires a single piece of paper to be folded in half over and over again. So people have tried, uh, you know, all sorts of various things and uh, including uh, basically fan folding and things like that. But she notes, these efforts to break the record have not adhered to the requirements of the challenge as they circumvent the principles of the mathematical geometric progression of paper folding and demonstrate a misunderstanding of why the challenge was thought to be impossible. Nonetheless, I anticipate that my current record will be surpassed, Gallivan said. I wish everyone the best success with their paper folding endeavors, but want to make sure the foundation of the challenge and what makes this problem so marvelous is not lost in the process. But the mathematics is quite amazing. If you were to fold a sheet that is just 0.1 millimeters thick after the 42nd fold, it would be more than 273,280 miles high, a measurement greater than the average distance between the Earth and the Moon. This is according to uh, Boundless Brilliance, a Los Angeles-based STEM education nonprofit. Um, so yeah, that's pretty impressive um, that you would have a stack that high. And that's just 0.1 millimeters thick. And so it's just amazing to think about this sort of thing. Um, and to think about how cool it was that this young person decided to actually do this challenge. And one of the things that I often talk about on the show is the importance of citizen science. And there are lots of people who do all sorts of really cool and interesting things all the time. And sometimes they prove to be really cool like this. Sometimes they prove to be more controversial. Um, I wasn't going to get to it tonight, but there is a recent story of an amateur who basically has purported to have found the earliest form of uh, human writing and uh, lots of other, lots of professionals are dubious of this. Uh, and so that kind of thing is more challenging because it's interpretive, whereas this is a very solid STEM uh, kind of um, foundational thing where you've got a mechanical problem, basically, and you can do the math and you can figure it out. And it's really interesting and fun. And so I think that it's really cool that uh, this young woman was able to do it and that, you know, her record has held for many years. Uh, I don't know if any of you want to start trying to fold extremely long pieces of paper, but uh, if you do, uh, she clearly would not be uh, upset if you broke her record. But um, yeah, I definitely don't think that <laughs> I'm going to be working on that anytime soon. 
But um, in the new year, uh, just to remind people again, there are many ways in which you can do citizen science projects. Uh, Zooniverse is kind of the big clearinghouse for that, but there's others as well that you can get into. Um, and there are all sorts of available projects, everything from looking at pictures and identifying what's in them to looking at museum specimens that nobody's looked at, at a, in a hundred years and either deciphering tags on them or telling people what you see in the picture. And uh, there's all sorts of astronomy projects. And yeah, I think it's really amazing all of the science that just the everyday person can do. And so I definitely think that that's worth looking into if you want to have an actual impact. And if you don't, that's fine. Um, but I think it's really cool that scientists have been able to reach out to the public and not only bring the public in uh, for their enrichment, but also to use that power of, you know, the crowd of, of crowdsourcing and of having all of these human minds and human eyes, especially. So one of the things in astronomy is that the human eye is just so much better still than the computer imaging processors that we have. And so in astronomy, they really do need actual human beings looking at those pictures because the computers just can't do a good enough job. And so I think it's really fun and fascinating. Okay, uh, enough of that aside. <laughs> Let us now go back to the mathematics of paper. And this time, um, we are going to switch to the art and mathematics of paper airplanes. So back in March, researchers at New York's Univers New York University's current Institute of Mathematical Sciences published a paper in the Journal of Fluid Mechanics outlining a mathematical model to predict flight stability of a paper airplane. The study started with simple curiosity about what makes a good paper airplane and specifically what is needed for smooth gliding, said co-author Leif Ristroff. Answering such basic questions ended up being far from child's play. We discovered that the aerodynamics of how paper airplanes keep level flight is really very different from the stability of conventional airplanes. Now, of course, we don't know who invented the first paper airplane. Part of the problem with paper is that it's fairly uh, quickly decomposable in many areas. But paper began to be created on a large scale around 500 BC in China. And by 460 to 390, or between 460 and 390 BC, origami and paper folding as an art became popular. So pretty much almost directly after paper became a thing, people started folding it. And um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. And a lot of people have been obviously very interested in flying. And uh, so we see that all over the place. There's all sorts of um, models and other things that show that ancient people were interested in flight and in uh, usually just in toys that did things. But 
That's important too. Now, many have used this now ubiquitous medium to test their ideas about flight. Leonardo da Vinci built a model plane out of parchment and used paper models to test the design of his, of his ornithopter. Uh, that's that kind of corkscrew-looking model that he made that was, was more helicopter than uh, plane and uh, probably would have never worked, but it was a good idea. Sir George Cayley, sometimes called the father of aviation, studied the gliding performance of paper airplanes when designing a glider capable of human flight. Now, a lot has been written about aerodynamics, obviously, especially around aircraft. Ristroff and his colleagues, though, realized that there was not a good mathematical model for predicting the simpler gliding flight of paper airplanes. Now, what was well known was that displacing the center of mass results in various flight trajectories, some more stable than others. So, for instance, think about adding a paperclip to a paper airplane. The key criterion of a successful glider is that the center of mass must be in the just right place, said Ristroff. Good paper airplanes achieve this with the front edge folded over several times or by an added paperclip, which requires a little trial and error. And so Ristroff and his team experimented using various rectangular sheets of paper. By changing the front weight, in order to change the front weight, they added thin metallic tape to one edge. They found that an unweighted sheet tumbled end over end while swaying left to right as gravity pulled it downward. Adding a small weight to shift the center of mass slightly forward caused the paper to tumble even more. They found that flyers with greater front loading produced more unpredictable trajectories with swoops, climbs, flips, and dives. The next step, and uh, remember, they published in Fluid Dynamics because even though we don't think of air as a fluid, it is a fluid. Um, in the sense of the mechanics of it, but they actually did switch to water. <laughs> and so the next step was to switch to thin plastic plates that glided through a large glass tank of water because it's functionally the same kinds of dynamics. The plates were laser cut uh, acrylic sheets with two small fins embedded with lead weights to displace the center of mass and also to serve as aerodynamic stabilizers. 17 plastic plates were tested, each with a different center of mass. Each was released using a short ramp to slide into the tank where the team recorded the motion through the water. The team found that the dynamics were the same as for the paper airplanes, unsurprisingly, with the weight near the center of the plate, it would flutter and tumble erratically. Too far forward to one edge, and the plate would nosedive and crash. And it was somewhere between those extremes that there was a particular sweet spot. There, the aerodynamic force on the plate's wings would push the wing 
back down if it moved forward and back up if it moved downward, thus ensuring stability. This is very different from the way in which airplanes fly. Conventional aircraft rely on airfoils, structures that generate lift. The effect we found in paper airplanes does not happen for the traditional airfoils used as aircraft wings, whose center of pressure stays fixed in place across the angles that occur in flight, said Ristroff. The shifting of the center of pressure thus seems to be a unique property of thin, flat wings, and this ends up being the secret to the stable flight of paper airplanes. This is why airplanes need a separate tail wing as a stabilizer, while a paper airplane can get away with just a main wing that gives both lift and stability. The team then devised a mathematical model as a flight simulator to reproduce these motions. They believe their work may have applications for small-scale flights, like for small-scale flyers, like drones and flying robots, which are often simpler in design and don't require the bells and whistles of more advanced craft. They also believe it may be useful in application to the flight of plant seeds. And so, for instance, a 1987 study of the flying seeds of the gourd Elsometra macrocarpa showed a center of mass and glide ratio consistent with the team's optimal gliding requirements. And since we have a few more minutes, let's talk about the origin of paper. And so, obviously, it is attributed to the Chinese, who before that would have written on bamboo or on silk. But silk is expensive and bamboo is heavy. (laughs) So, uh, obviously, it's better to find something else to do this with. And so officially paper was invented in 105 AD by a Chinese court official named Sa'ai Lun, but in 2006, a fragment of a paper map bearing Chinese characters uh, dating from 200 BC was found at Fangmatan in northeast Gansu province. And so obviously they had already been working with paper. Now Lun would have used a mixture of the bark of a mulberry tree, hemp, and shredded cloth rags. And they would have, he would have mixed it with water, mash the mixture into a pulp, press out the liquid, and hang the resulting sheets out to dry in the sun. You have may have done this yourself at, you know, a summer camp or something. I've made uh, handmade paper before. I've also made papyrus um, at uh, Smith at the um, conservatory there, and that was really fun. And so the word paper was derived from the word papyrus, which is ancient Greek, Greek for the Cyperus papyrus plant. And so obviously it quickly was adopted in China and then spread via the Silk Road back uh, across 
the rest of Asia and into Europe. Now, the Chinese used paper for padding and wrapping, and starting around the late 6th century, they actually used it as toilet paper. So toilet paper goes back that far. Um, and we know this, for instance, from a quote by Chinese scholar Yan Zitui, uh, who wrote in 589 uh, AD, paper on which there are quotations or commentaries from five classics or the names of sages I dare not use for toilet purposes. And so during the Tang Dynasty, which is 618 to 907, paper was used to make tea bags. Uh, during the Song Dynasty, uh, slightly after that, it was used to produce the first paper money. And by around 740, after the Chinese invented woodblock printing, because of course, printing was also invented in China, not Gutenberg, uh, movable type was invented in either China or Korea, I think, the movable type, but woodblock printing. Uh, the first newspapers were uh, created in China around 740 AD. So again, we have this idea that things are, uh, you know, new and other people didn't have these things, but they really did. Um, and so by 740 AD, there were already newspapers. And I'm pretty sure that in the first, um, you know, uh, city-states, there were actually museums. I need to find that and uh, research that a little bit, but I remember that in the back of my head. So don't quote me, but I believe that they did. Um, so yeah, uh, people were very cool and amazing and um, we could learn a lot from them. And so, yeah. All right. That's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.